would, please turn in your Bible with me to the book of Joshua, chapter 6. Joshua, chapter 6. Uh, this morning, we're going to be dealing really with uh, most of Joshua 6. However, we're really going to be looking this morning at verses 1 through 20. So Joshua 6, verses 1 through 20. I want to start off just with a quick poll. Make sure you're at least starting uh, the sermon awake. Um, how many have, of you have heard of C.S. Lewis? Raise, raise your hand. Okay, good. Well, if you've heard any of my sermons, I know I've mentioned him before. Uh, C.S. Lewis is known throughout the world as a Christian apologist and an accomplished writer. Um, whose work has captured the imagination of people all over the world. How many of you are familiar with uh, C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia? Okay, most of you. Uh, how many are you, of you are familiar with uh, his lesser-known Space Trilogy? Oh, much less. All right. How many have, of you have read his Space Trilogy? <clears throat> I'm the only one. Okay, well, you've got some homework to do. Um, you're probably, uh, so, so C.S. Lewis is, am I surprised you to know, C.S. Lewis actually wrote a, a, an iconic science fiction series, which is affectionately referred to as the Space Trilogy. Um, in the second book, Paralandra, Lewis tells a story of a professor named Ransom, who is sent on a divinely appointed mission to the planet Venus. Now, in the book, Venus is referred to as Paralandra, which is where the title comes from. When Ransom arrives there, he finds a world that is actually in the dawn of new life. And he lands in this sort of oceanic paradise, a sort of new Eden. The water is not salty, it is sweet, it is life-giving. There are paths of floating islands of vegetation which produce the most amazing and satisfying sorts of fruit. Uh, while he's there, Ransom has all sorts of encounters with unique animals that live either on these floating islands or in the waters of the sea. And as he's making his way exploring this new world, he meets a woman whose name is Tinadril, who we find out in time is the queen of this world. Tinadril appears human, though she's distinctly unique from Ransom uh, because she has green skin. Uh, but she's also different because she is innocent and carefree. She lives in this fresh new world as she pleases with one stipulation. She and the king, who does not appear until the end of the book, are the only two uh, sort of human inhabitants of Paralandra. They may do as they please, living on these, as they wish on these floating islands, but the one stipulation is they are not allowed they're not permitted to sleep on the only geographical uh, piece of land that seems to be stayed. It's, it's referred to as the fixed land, this, this island that's in the midst of this ocean that doesn't move. So they may go there, but they may not sleep there. That's the one stipulation. Now, a few weeks after Ransom gets, uh, meets Tenadrill, an unwelcome guest appears in Paralandra, a rival professor that we know bef from before, uh, out of, uh, from, from Lewis's first book, Out of the Silent Planet, a Professor Weston. He arrives in a ship, and he emerges from his ship, and Ransom, who is very skeptical about what on earth Weston could be there for, tells, tells Ransom that he's reformed, and um, 
However, it becomes clear in time that Weston is actually there in the service of a wicked, corrupting force. Weston makes it his sole purpose to tempt Tenadril to do the one thing that she's been forbidden by her maker to do, to go and to live on the fixed land. Now, Ransom had been sent on this mission to Paralanger without any detail as to what he would find there or even what he was supposed to do when he got there. But with the arrival of Weston and the t- his temptation of Tenadril, he, he begins to see why he was sent there. Ransom realizes to his horror that if Tenadril gives in to Weston's persuasive arguments, the fall will be reenacted on Paralandra, and he sees that he has a chance to intervene. So he argues with Weston and the evil force that apparently possesses him. He reasons with Tenadril to wait on the promises that she's received from her maker. But even so, uh, Ransom rec- as Ransom, Ransom perceives that Weston's temptations are gaining ground, they are taking hold of Tenadril's heart. She starts to believe that she really would be better off to defy her, the will of her maker and to, that she would be better off to trade the paradise she has for Weston's lies. That night, Ransom is confronted by a divine command to take this demonic force on. Uh, and he, he, he realizes he must wage all-out war. Ransom actually debates for hours with this inner voice. But then he's reminded by God that he was ransomed just as he was ransomed for his sins by the interdiction of Jesus on his behalf. So he has been sent there to intervene as an extension of that grace. So... The next day, Ransom goes to war, fighting Weston's body and the demonic force that had possessed him. His combat takes him across the ocean to the fixed land, into a cave, where he fights Weston from the depths of the earth all the way until finally he wins. I've kind of ruined the book for you. Um, I would encourage you to read it anyway. uh, There's a key point, though. He wins, but not before he is painfully bitten on the ankle a wound that causes, causes him to have a limp and from which he never ceases to bleed slow the rest of his life. Now, after the battle, celestial rulers from other planets come. The disaster of Eden did not come to the paradise of Paralandra, and the king and the queen receive authority to rule an unfallen world. The striking thing about the way Paralandra ends is that the paradise that the king and the queen receive was actually secured at the expense of someone else. Dr. Ransom. Ransom's battle is meant to be a reflection of how God has secured victory for his people through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and his victory over sin and death when he suffered on the cross. You could, maybe, make the case that Dr. Ransom deserved to be the king of Paralandra. After all, the king of the world doesn't show up until the end. Um, and, And Ransom was the one who risked his own life to drive evil out of the world. But that privilege wasn't granted to him because he was there to serve the purpose of his own master. The peace of Paralander was purchased by the grace of another, but the king and the queen were still the recipients of that paradise. It's an astonishing way to end a story. Because in a similar way, and in a similar way to what we're going to see in our passage today, we see that God's people have received paradise because of the work and the victory of someone else. We see the nation of Israel did not receive the inheritance of this promised land because of their own efforts. They received it because God fought for them. God's victory at Jericho is a call to you and to me to trust the God who fights for his people.
So let's begin by reading our passage. I know this is a very familiar passage. Uh, I want to encourage you, if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading Joshua 6, verses 1 through 20. This is the Word of the Lord. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out, and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with a ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet... Then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat or upon itself. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets, with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the Ark, while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, walked on. And they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men walked before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are in, with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing of destru- for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, the main idea of our passage simply is this. The battle is the Lord's. And our place is, is in our place in His plan is to trust Him. The battle is the Lord's, and our place in His plan is to trust Him. I have three points this morning. Um, 
as Cal anticipated in his devotional. Um, and they are simply based on our, our main idea. So first, we see that the battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. Second, we see the place of faith. The place of faith. And finally, we see faith's bold plan. Faith's bold plan. Well, um, you've probably heard of, maybe you've even sung that old African-American spiritual, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. It's one of, it was one of my favorite uh, songs to play when I was playing in the college jazz band. It is a fun, lively song that talks about how Joshua and the army of Israel went up against Jericho. It goes, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Oh, I'm going to sing it. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho when the walls came tumbling down. It's great. All right? I hope you go home singing that. As great of a song as it is, though, I realized this week as I was looking at the lyrics, um, searching for a great opening illustration, it says a lot about Joshua and the walls, and it never gets to the main point of the whole story. It doesn't say anything about the God who knocked the walls down. Well, the biblical account of the Battle of Jericho is strategically written to make the point that Jericho fell because God delivered it over to Joshua and the people. Jericho fell because God delivered it over. Uh, we can see this point being made as early as verse 1. We see that Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. That means that, means that no one went in, no one came out. Now, in a world where warfare is waged with rockets, machine guns, and aircraft carriers, it can be hard for us to get a handle on the way that warfare used to be waged. Not that long ago, the best defense you could have was a wall. Cities like Jericho typically weren't ever taken with just one big battle. Usually commanders would have to lay siege to a city. You had to cut off the people inside from their resources and, and weaken them uh, through starvation or through uh, if they couldn't get water. And then either you were hoping that people would surrender or maybe at some point you'd be able to discover a weak place in its walls. So laying siege to a city like this could take months, maybe even years. The Babylonian siege of Jerusalem lasted at least 18 months. Some think that it took 30 months. That's a long time. That could be even longer depending on the kind of defenses that a city had to offer. So when we're told that a powerful city like Jericho is all buttoned up like this because of Israel, we get the impression that uh, this might take a while. Jericho is at the very peak of its strength. If Joshua and the people could have staged a surprise attack, maybe before the, the people of Jericho realized they were even there, they would have been able to win probably very quickly. But since Jericho was shut up inside and out, no one's coming in, no one's going out, we're starting to think that maybe this is going to be a tougher nut to crack than we thought. What's interesting is that it's, it's at this very point, this very moment, while Jericho is at high alert, while it is at its very best, that the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. The, the timing of that statement here in verse 1, that Jericho was shut up inside and out, and God's statement in verse 2, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, is meant to make a really strong point to us. It's the same point that was made when, when, when God brought Israel to the brink of the Jordan River when it was flooded and at its very peak of power. 
The world is going to know that Yahweh, the living God, fights for his people. The world is going to see the glory of Almighty God. Now, Joshua didn't have any bunker-busting bombs. He couldn't call in an airstrike. He didn't need any of that because the battle was the Lord's. Verse 2 is like a pillar that holds this entire chapter up. God brought Israel to Jericho while it was at its strongest. And then he told Joshua to look at this city in all of its might and to believe the promise that he had given them. He says, see, behold, I have already given you victory over them. It's a done deal. And it's a done deal because God is the champion who fights for his people. The battle is the Lord's and the victory is the Lord's. That is the message that echoes through this entire chapter. Now, I want to show you two other ways that we, uh, that we see that big theme being emphasized here. So two other ways. First, we see that God instructs Joshua and the people to wage an unconventional warfare against Jericho. He instructs them to wage an unconventional warfare. Normally, you don't want the enemy to know the exact number of your troops. You want to look bigger than you actually are. So you also don't want to spread your troops out too thin in case the army inside the city sees an opportunity and decides to, to break out and overwhelm your army while it's at its most vulnerable level. But look at what God tells Joshua to do in verse 3. He tells them to expose the number of warriors they have, and he tells them to make themselves at the most vulnerable position they could possibly be at. He says, You shall march around the city, all the men of war, going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, you shall, and when you hear the trumpet, then all the people shall, all, or shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat onto itself, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. Notice that in this great divine battle plan, there is nothing about any weapons or even any real military tactics and the instructions that are being given here. That's because the battle belonged to God. What did the commander of the army of the Lord tell Joshua after he had announced to Joshua who he was? He said, Now I have come. Jericho was not going to fall by Joshua's sword or by siege works or by battering rams. It was going to fall by the sword of God. In Psalm 20, David declares, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. The prophet Isaiah echoes David in Isaiah 31 when he says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of God or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The battle strategy that Joshua received from God 
was not designed to be an example of military technique so much as it was designed to be an example of the fact that the battle is the Lord's and that the Lord fights for his people. Here, as on the banks of the Red Sea, God was going to triumph over the armies of the nation so that the world would see the power of God and know and fear God, who is the defender of his people. The message of the battle of Jericho is the same message uh, that uh, given many years later when God raised up the coward Gideon and put to, ar- put to flight the armies of Midian with 300 men and some empty jars and torches. It's, it's the same message that's given by David when he would not take Saul's life into his own hands because he feared God and would not raise his hand against God's anointed. It's the same message of Elisha and his servant when the Assyrian army came down and the servant is saying to Elisha, what are we going to do? And Elisha prays, God open his eyes and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around him. It's the same message of Jesus when he told Peter to put his sword back in his sheath and asked him if he did not know that with one word he could summon legions of heavenly angels to wipe out his enemies. God works in mysterious ways, often through lowly, meek, and foolish ways to perform his will, to make it clear that he is the one who fights for and delivers his people. He is the one who secures his people's rest. And he has done that most vividly through Jesus Christ as he has fought for and secured salvation for his people through his suffering on the cross. God, Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 1.27, chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's in the weakness and the shame of the cross that our hope of salvation has been made secure. And in that respect, we can, gain a sense, we, can, uh, we can gain a sense of the position that Israel was in as it made its way around Jericho. I think every one of those warriors knew they were in a vulnerable position, and they still went, because that was what God had told them to do. The clear message of this battle strategy is that as the Lord fought for Israel that day against the forces of Jericho and gave victory to them, so he has also fought for and delivered victory for you and me and all who link themselves to Christ by faith over sin and death to bring us into the the rest of a better land and the realm of King Jesus. Now the the third way I want to show you uh, that God emphasized to Israel that the battle was his had to do with the way he put his ark in the midst of them as they circled the city. Now, we talked about the significance of the Ark of the Covenant when we were back in chapter 3, and Israel was getting ready to to cross over the Jordan River into Canaan. This is the second time that the Ark of the Lord has been mentioned in Joshua, and we're meant to see a connection to the way that God delivered Israel through the Jordan River to the way he gave Jericho into their hands. Remember what Joshua had told the people when they were on the shores of Jordan? He says, here is how you will know that the living God is among you 
and that he will, without fail, drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, in this moment, as they've come to the first city in their conquest of, his, of, of the promised land, that same ark is joining the people as they make their way around Jericho. Just as God stepped into the chaos of the Jordan River and brought Israel out with not, not leaving a single person on the other side, now he is joining them at the walls of Jericho to split those walls open and to bring the city into their hands. Now, there are other occasions in the Bible where Israel tried to use the Ark of the Covenant to, to give themselves victory in battle. In 1 Samuel 4, after Israel lost a, a small battle with the Philistines, we read that they rallied themselves, they brought the Ark of the Lord up from Shiloh uh, because it seems they had come to associate the Ark of the Lord with the power of victory rather than seeing that it was God who gave the victory, not the Ark itself. And for their arrogance, God punished them they lost even more. Uh, they, lost, they had huge losses to the Philistines. And then the Philistines actually took the Ark of the Covenant with them as a spoil of war. So the Ark of the Covenant was never intended to be used as a lucky charm or as, as a super weapon. We shouldn't think that Israel had victory at Jericho because they had the Ark. They had victory because God was with them. And that is what the Ark was meant to represent. It was a reminder of God's holiness, his favor, and his presence among the people. God sent his ark in among the people as they marched around the walls of Jericho to encourage them to take this step of faith, to know that he was with them and that therefore the victory was theirs. The most comforting parts of the great commission that Jesus has given to his church are that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him and that he is with us always to the very end of the age. The wisdom of the gospel isn't the sort of wisdom that the world looks for. The gospel isn't a strategy for getting blessings from God. It's a call to come and empty ourselves and to take up a cross and to follow Christ with a promise that all who come to Christ he will most certainly never cast out. The battle isn't ours, it's God's. But because he is with us, we know he will, and, and because we know he will be with us to the end, we have a reason to hope. The same way the soldiers of Israel had a reason to hope as they made their way around the city in this most bizarre display of military tactics. Many of us have faced some severe discouragements this year. 2020 has tried our faith. It's caused us to see how fragile and frail we really are. It's threatened to imprison us in a cage of doubt and fear. And it's in times like this that we need to look to the great warrior who fights for his people and who always wins. God cannot lie. And when Jesus tells us that he is with us, that means that he is with us there in times of sickness and in health, in times when we thrive and when we suffer. The blessing and the hope of the Christian life is that wherever God sends us, he is with us there to give us victory as he fights for us. Well, the battle of the Jericho was the Lord's, but God also had a place for Joshua and for the people. And that's what leads us to see our second point, the place of faith, the place of faith. 
When the commander of the army of the Lord came to Joshua, he came really to prepare Joshua and the people to come alongside him as he delivered Jericho into their hands. The focus of his battle plan had really very little to do with the actual fighting, and it really has more to do with Israel's faith and Israel's obedience. The chap- uh, this chapter does more than just recording how Israel uh, won the battle. It actually does more to record how Israel meticulously obeyed God's instructions. And, and it does that in vivid detail. Uh, it is amazing to me how repetitious this chapter is. It's kind of like, I, I got the point when the commander of the army of the Lord said it the first time. But now I've been told three times about how Israel did that. And so we tend to kind of blank out on that and just okay i'll just get through this i know what's happening but that that repetition is meant there to be it's, it's, it's meant to create a, an important point for us we're meant to see how israel meticulously obeyed the commands of god and that is more of the point joshua's account of the battle of jericho shows us that the battle really was the lord's and that the place that god calls his people is to a place of faith in him and a faith of obedience To understand this point, let's look at how Joshua and Israel committed themselves to God's battle plan. In verse 3, Joshua and the people are commanded to march march around the city once for six days. On the seventh day, they're commanded to march around the city seven times, and the priests are to blow their trumpets. And when the, when the priests make a long blast on their horns, the people are to shout in victory, the walls will come down, and the people are to rush in straight ahead into the city to destroy it and all that are in it. In verses 6 through 14, uh, it, it, the text explains to us in great detail how Joshua and the people meticulously obeyed God's battle plan. Six, it, it even goes so far as to tell us what they did the first day and how they did it the second day, and then it just summarizes and says they did that all six days. Six days, Joshua and the people did what the Lord told them to do. They went up, they marched around the city of Jericho once, and they returned to their camp. There's a little more detail given in the actual execution of God's commands in this section. Uh, In verse 10, we're actually told that Joshua instructed the people that as they walked, they were not to to shout, they were not to make their voices heard, they were not even to speak a word until the seventh day. Now, that's an interesting command. It's an interesting detail to read. I imagine for the people of Jericho, this would have created a really eerie effect. Depending on where the priests of the ark were around the city, the only thing that the people of Jericho would have heard would have either been the blaring of ram's horns or the sound of Israel's feet as they marched around. Um, Other than that, it would have been total silence. Now Joshua didn't receive this command directly from the commander of the army of the Lord in verses 1 through 5, but I do think we're meant to understand that this was God's Intent and that Joshua was making the people understand the command that God was, God was giving them. It's sort of an odd command to tell people not to say anything, but it had a purpose. Israel's silent march was, I think, intended to serve their faith. They were learning to live by faith in God as he fought for them, and they learned this by their silence before him. John Calvin points out that while God's strategy for victory looked on the outside like child's play, it was not improper for the testing and the trying of Israel's faith. Israel was not being commanded to make a show of force. They were being commanded to make a show of faith. And for this, Hebrews 11 verse 30 says, um, 
said, says that this is the reason the walls of Jericho fell. Author of Hebrews says, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Jericho had nothing to fear from Israel as they walked around the walls. But they had everything to fear from the God who was with Israel in their midst. And Israel was learning to exchange their own reasoning and insight for the wisdom and the power of God. And that is the place where they were going to experience victory. The only part that God gave Israel in this battle, Calvin notes, was to remain calm and silent. That thus they may better accustom themselves simply to execute his command. God called Israel to a place of faith. A faith in the power of his deliverance and in the power of his promise as he readied the armies of heaven to come against Jericho. Faith, the author of Hebrews tells us, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, and by it the people of old received their commendation before God. This morning, uh, our brother Cal explored how Abraham, uh, Abraham's faith, is by faith Abraham was counted as righteous before God. And by faith, we trust in the effectiveness of the work of Christ, and we experience the life that his, he has secured for us in his death and resurrection, which we did not have before. We see the place of faith that God uh, set Israel in beside him in three ways here. As I've already mentioned, we see it in Israel's silence. We see their faith in their silence. The Israelite soldiers were not permitted to, to answer the insults that I'm sure were cast down at them from the walls. They were not given an outlet to express their frustration at having to walk around a dusty city with no apparent re reason. They were not allowed to try to intimidate the people of Jericho, yelling at them because the, they knew the battle was theirs anyway. They had been called to a place of faith with their eyes fixed on, on, on the Lord, a place to be silent before the Lord as he worked out victory for them. Let's be honest. We do an awful lot of talking. And our words often do not benefit anyone. Come behold the works of the Lord, we read earlier in Psalm 46. How he has brought desolation on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with